every Everton fan that I've ever spoke to over the years fully appreciates what he's given the club probably over the last 15 years. I don't think there's been a player that's given more than Seamus Coleman. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. Oh, the shame that will care. You've let all the fans down. Can we not knock it? It's a fact. I love playing mind games and talking about facts. I always said if I was Aladici, I would probably say I was more of a tactical genius. The answer questions on anything about religious, politics, uh, health, you know, sexual uh, problems. Look at his face! Just look at his face! None of you except for those two have done anything to justify the money that you earn. None of you, this And I suggest you shut up and show more football. You're very welcome along to Team 33 on this New Year's Eve. Welcome along, I'm Andy Call. This is Off The Ball and we're going to be looking back at the 2021 football year tonight. If anybody can remember anything other than COVID restrictions and being locked inside, that is. A lot happened this year in football. We had the rise and fall, the quick fall of the Super League. We had a European competition. The Euros went ahead and it was a year late, but it was very, very good. Ireland had a World Cup qualifying campaign under new manager Stephen Kenny. Bohemians played in Europe. There's been lots going on, Arthur O'Dea. And honestly, I didn't know most of that happened this year. I wasn't sure whether that happened this year or that happened last year because this year has just been a bit of a muddle. Yeah, I can't believe that the Super League was this year. I <laughs> almost refusing to believe that 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 was just um, so close to the Euros as well. Even the Euros, that feels like a lifetime ago. It's just, I don't know, maybe that's just something new. We kind of forget about it. Maybe that happens at the end of every year that you kind of, like, you lose track of time and perspective. But that seems particularly acute like that. I can't believe that that was this year. It just doesn't, it doesn't feel like it. I think it's because, and now this is just my working theory, that the winter periods under these restrictions have been so weird and difficult and such a sort of world of their own that the summer where we could actually do things and enjoy things the way they were supposed to be enjoyed just seems so far-fetched and long ago that it couldn't have been in the same calendar year as what's happening right now. It's like we're going just kind of snow blind. We've just kind of lost our minds a little bit. Just kind of mm-hmm. out here, just this grim isolation. No particular exactly. time. Does the sun ever exactly. rise? Does it set? I wasn't actually even sure what day I was supposed to record the show at, no. to be honest. Because I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was going to record it yesterday, but then I was like, oh, wait, what day is it? And I had to look at my phone twice to make sure that I had the right date. But it's just one of those weird periods at Christmas where you lose time and perspective of... We stay. What about the year in general? If you could sum it up, good year, bad year in terms of sport and football. Um, oh look, I think where it was meant to be, where I, I think the bits that you would want to have been good delivered. So I thought like that the the run into the Champions League was class. I thought that was great. I thought the final was great. Like I, I really enjoyed it. Like I know it wasn't the best game, but I really enjoyed it. That Chelsea City game and. The game's building up to that as well. Um, the Euros was brilliant. Maybe one of the, definitely one of the best tournaments I remember. Um, the Premier League was kind of, I suppose, forgettable enough. It has been with, that's kind of run its course. But then even the FAI Cup final as well. Like I think the, there was a lot of high points where you would want high points. And that's not to be sniffed at, because that's by no means taken for granted at all. Mm-hmm. 100%. I will remember this football year and you only get a good reminder of it 
when there were a couple of games now without fans. Yeah, I will remember this year for the return of fans to stadiums and what that did to sport because it really showed. And I, I watched the Man City RB Leipzig game in the Champions League a couple of weeks ago that no fans in it at all. And you just get used to it when it was on. You know, you get you tailor yourself to what you're watching. But now that I've had fans back in football stadiums and I know what it is, I know the difference because before it was sort of novel, you know, we didn't really know what it was like to watch football without fans. But now we know we cannot go back to football without fans because it is a completely different product. Yeah. Do you remember as well, like it's it's so easy and it will so easily be forgotten, but the the pumped in fan noise and empty grounds, like it was just, even how quickly that kind of became usual. It was just Mm. kind of like, this is, it just, it's so surreal. It's so kind of just, I, I think you're spot on. I think the, to hint at again even the FA Cup final again was just such a antidote for that like particularly here as well in Ireland and even the kind of the Portugal game here and just like to see it just it, it really does transform it it's like a different it's like a different event altogether like it, it really football without it just is not maybe when you still have vested interest you have vested interest but it doesn't geez, it does not grip you in the same way at all it just, it just doesn't feel as big or as important no, not at all. The FA Cup final that Leicester won, which oh, again, yeah. I'm, I'm assured is this year. Uh, yeah. That was when, that was when we got the first sense of fans returning to the games because that was the the first big one. And then that was like that was the turning point for me. I remember yeah. watching that game and being totally gripped by what was happening because the scale of the jeopardy of the game just felt so much higher when it came to celebrating in front of the fans and how that game ended it was just it was magical stuff to watch and it was actually it was in a, in a corny way it was like watching a, a Disney movie in real life unfold where people return and it's safe again and all this uh, garbage that you get with those films but it was fantastic and even the the Thielemans goal like yeah amazing, oh, like, amazing. just one of those where it's just like everyone in the stadium like what has just happened <laughs> And just a noise. And and then, to be fair, like to him afterwards, Gary Lineker kind of catches the whole thing perfectly from the thing. And as all the noises, ah, it's just, that was an amazing moment. Yeah, that was absolutely spot on. I, again, you could have told me it was any year. <laughs> but it was, that was brilliant. Well, let's get into some of the bigger topics that happened this year then. I mentioned the Super League in the intro. So that that unfolded in April of 2021. And that was a really big story when it came to football. I mean, that was groundbreaking stuff and still is to this day sort of a a turning point within football of where the clubs stand, what they want, what they stand for, their sort of relationship with the fans changed a little bit as well. And I remember when it happened. So people were like, oh, okay, this is, it's been, it's been rumored for a few years, but this is, it's finally happening. It's finally going to go over the line. And then sort of the in the same way that I remember the off-the-ball offices in 2019 when everything started being cancelled, where it was just... Or it was 2020 when everything started get, getting, getting yeah, cancelled, yeah, yeah. I, I believe. <laughs> so it was it was like watching the stock market. It was like, okay, oh, well, that's horses and gone. <laughs> Premier League's gone. FA Cup's gone. League of Ireland's gone. It was just story after story after story. And Man- Manchester City were the first club to pull out of the Super League, which started this domino effect of, well, oh, Juventus have gone, 
Barcelona are gone, Real Madrid are gone, Premier League teams are gone, and then it just collapsed. Within the space of a two-hour window, which off the ball happened to be live on air at the time, every single club, bar Real Madrid and Juventus, had pulled out of the Super League plans, and it was just shelved. That was it, gone. It was. It was really remarkable. It was like living... Um, you don't want to put too fine a point in it, but it's like you're living through something historic or you're living through history. You're like, <laughs> it's just, it, it was just so, and I remember, yeah, working through it, just not the stress of it, but you're kind of constantly just kind of updating, checking, checking to see, because something seemed to be always happening. Whatever kind of was going on, something seemed to have changed since you last checked. I think I remember, I think I was watching, I, I was watching that show that night that, that, uh, the radio show and um, we're listening to radio show I suppose but um, and then it culminated kind of in, in Woodward walking away and you're like Jesus <laughs> it's like yeah. I don't know whatever whatever and the, and the days are all a muddle but I just remember escalating 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 and then this completely other right field always leaving it like God almighty like how big and you kind of then how deep do the roots of this thing stretch like how much it kind of always looked a bit ad hoc and a bit kind of like they hadn't really thought it out or went after it the right way, but then you're thinking, God, there are there's kind of heads rolling for this straight away. Like there's not even they're not even going through kind of any kind of cursory inspection of the whole thing. Oh, where did this all go wrong? It's like no, straight away, cut, gone, you're out. And it's like you messed it up. Keep going. Yeah. And it just, and I think I don't know what you think, but I think it all felt even at the time. It was fascinating how exacerbated the whole thing was by Sky Sports by the panel on their panel like that really I think if ever we have a kind of a view on what not necessarily what they're capable of but what they're certainly the interest and uh, reaction they're capable of creating and cultivating mm-hmm. I mean, that was a perfect example of it Neville particularly yeah it was Neville's uh, sort of second coming as a, <laughs> a political voice or, or a, a ranter or someone who can who can make change happen and we actually scrapped the entire show that night on Off the Ball. <laughs> we had we had a, a nicely laid out show, and at half seven, we had a production meeting, and we just decided let's throw it all out and let's get everybody we can possibly get on this story. And we end, ended up doing two and a half hours from from eight o'clock to to ten o'clock, um, and then on online. Then after that, on just the Super League and Ed Woodward being the final story. It was it was crazy when it happened. And yeah, I remember when it was announced that it was happening, the Super League was coming out and the, the graphics were weird. It yeah. looked like there was they paid like five, $5 on Etsy to get it made up. And a part of me still sort of thinks this was just the first attempt where, okay, we'll throw the feelers out. We'll see how it's fixed. Sort of like when there's a leak from the Irish government <laughs> followed by a press conference a couple of hours later. We'll throw this out to see what it's like, see what the reaction is, and then maybe a few months down the line we'll come to it. But I think the reaction was so vitriol that they're like, okay, we, we can't do this for another couple of years. They're not ready. It's not going to happen. And they got scared. And what's very interesting about it is the reaction since and I think I think fans now know where they probably were unaware at some like they they were aware of it in periods, but I think they're fully aware now that they are full on commodities that the clubs do not care about. They will they will shift them out at any point. 
But with the fans returning to the grounds now, I think the impact that that has had on football shows you that the product that they have is solely reliant on these fans that they were so willing to sell down the water for the Super League. I don't think the Super League is going to be possible to do. Whether Ed Woodward or uh, whatever ownership comes in from the United States think football can be made into franchises and you can bring them out to America and it'll be the exact same product. It won't be the same product because the fans in these areas is what ultimately makes or breaks this product. And I, I think that is a lesson that has been learned. I don't think the Super League will uh, come back in the next five to ten years. Yeah, I think by and large, you're right. They are. Um, they won't. No, I don't think they. I don't think they could try and do what they've done. But like, they're shameless. Like mm. absolutely shameless. Like it's so funny how, like I know people like my neither perfect case in point of it I'm sure there's still plenty of unrest there with what's going on especially because the results aren't perfect but it's not that long ago where you'd fans like again for whatever reason but fans like taking to the pitch and fans stopping a you know Liverpool game from being played and kind of that that it was kind of it was kind of predictable enough at the time as well but like that's seemingly gone that sort of initial reaction and gut kind of that as you're saying that kind of vitriolic reaction is kind of gone and I, I, I don't know. Like I don't know what they do from the owners' say, but I do suspect that normally, I suppose, if they want something, they're probably going to try and get it again. It's it's a re- like it, and I because I, I just I, it is a real shame when you think about it because you're you're spot on. Like it's just, and then we're going back to the other point about watching fans on the ground. Like it, it really is kind of personally. I, I already think it's gone too far. Like it's it's already too. Yeah much of a big business kind of maybe irretrievable but like certainly at the elite level um, I, I don't know though I do think that the fans because you can kind of see it like in, in, the, in the other leagues where they're less competitive and stuff like was it the Italian clubs that were seemingly quite happy fans there wasn't that much unrest it's like yeah Juventus fans like could probably do with something a bit different than just winning the league eight, nine, ten times in the trot like it's not really much crack anymore like which is kind of you understand it so and I don't know like from what like your case in point your point of view I mean from a Celtic fan's point of view obviously it's a bit more balanced now but like I wonder how much despite the fact that Celtic were constantly winning how much did you enjoy the last give or take nine eight nine years without something competitive you know without a, without a genuine rival there mm, absolutely loved it <laughs> well, that's, why are you no, following the dubs we see the, the interesting thing about the Celtic thing is that the competitive edge comes from European football and, and Champions League football and like Celtic winning the league gives them a, a free run at getting into European and Champions League, Champions league and Europa League football so that's where the challenge arises the problem with Juventus that I feel is that they're afraid of the challenge they're afraid they they can't win the Champions League, so oh, suddenly they need to go into the Super League. But the real the real story here is what you see in the post Super League, where Barcelona suddenly they're sitting not so pretty in the La Liga, and their finances are an absolute mess. They've had to yeah. sell Lionel Messi. They've had to you know you know basically decimate their squad just to survive as a club. Juventus no longer the powerhouses they once were in Italy. Don't have money to keep 
players at the club anymore, don't have the pull to bring their, their big star managers into the club anymore. This was about money. This was about Juventus surviving. This was about Barcelona surviving, Real Madrid adding to their finances and the Premier League clubs getting even more richer. We don't want to spend too much time on this though because a lot more happened in the in the year than than just the Super League. We'll breeze through a couple of them. Uh, anything in, in particular you want to touch about um, before we have to take a br- quick break and bring Colin Bouig into the, the mix, will we? We'll leave the Euros for when Colin's here. Do you want to touch on yeah. Ireland and the World Cup qualifiers maybe? It's hard to avoid Ireland, really. Yeah, like it's interesting. I don't know if you read it. There was a piece in the Irish Examiner yesterday. Um, John Fallon, who uh, it was kind of a review of the footballing year, and from an from Ireland perspective, a domestic football perspective. Um, you know, look, I think it's. I don't. I don't know what his official standing on it is, but certainly he's not necessarily someone who is uh, open in their praise of Stephen Kenny all the time, and. To be fair, I mean, he's entitled, he's there, he's looking at all these games and he's there first first hand, so fair play to him. But I, his perspective on this was that, like, uh, slightly unhelpfully, you know, swap the year. Say Ireland had started off all their campaign, started their campaign off with the wins and the convincing defeats at Luxembourg, whatever else, and then it kind of petered out. And the results Kenny got at the beginning or the results he got at the end. And the kind of, I suppose, his theory is that, like, if that had been the case, then geez, we'd all be calling for this guy to go. So it has to be in perspective. Like I, I think <laughs> personally, I don't really see that because, like, I suppose the way it is, we got like we did fairly poorly in the first round of games against all these teams, and then improved on every. I think there was I think we we I saw the tweet somewhere. It might have been Neil O'Reardon or someone on Twitter saying Ireland improved on every result against every team we played in those World Cup qualifiers the second time we played them. Every one of the results. Which is just like, you can't just flip that and go, yeah. well, what if we'd gotten worse each time? I Anyway, that just, I suppose, is our perspective. Um, and, and, and his take on it was that I suppose that uh, it wouldn't take a lot for the pressure to come back on Stephen Kenny and for his time to be up. I personally think, look, I think it's he's come through a really tough start, riddled with COVID issues and people out and everything else. And I, he looks happy, which is brilliant. The team seem happy. The atmosphere seems class. They're playing nice football. They're scoring goals. And I'm leaving this year really excited about it. I like like now it's at a point where it's definitely and it always kind of was the way but I, I'm looking forward to Ireland matches coming up more than anything else that's mm-hmm. really where the kind of the investment of interest will be I don't know what you're thinking is I don't know if you flip that on his head <laughs> you know the, the players are unhappy you're unhappy uh, no look I saw a tweet a couple of weeks ago as well or uh, maybe last week where somebody said that if Arsenal had beaten Man United and Liverpool <laughs> and someone else they'd be um, they'd be in the top two right now on goal yeah. difference uh, yeah th- that's all fair and good but they didn't yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean and those results happened in the order that they happened they did not uh, uh, happen the opposite way so the argument falls down based solely on that I mean Ireland did improve no doubt about it and I think if you look at the um, sort of combining factors that led to Ireland improving it's having their full first team having fit players having you know, replacements for those who are out injured, having replacements to come off the bench that are going to make a difference, like Jason Knight did against Luxembourg. Yeah. 
I mean, they, they, this is this is just the reality of the situation. People can call them excuses if they want, but it's reasons as yeah. <laughs> as opposed to excuses. I mean, if if a, your club team goes out with five of their starting eleven missing. 24 hours before the game and they lose, you're probably going to say, okay, yeah, there was five of the starting 11 missing. You know, that, like this, these are the things that happened. And I think the curve should always be going up yeah. if you're looking at the improvement. And the curve is continually going up with Stephen Kenny. So I, I thought it ended on a really positive note. And it, it, it did end, to be fair, to be fair to John Fallon and his sort of the point of his piece, it did end perfectly for Stephen Kenny. And if it, yeah. you know, maybe if the tide was different, it, it wouldn't have. But the reality of the situation is the year ended very well. And that goes for, goes into the hard work and dedication of not just Stephen Kenny, but the players that have adjusted to the system, the coaching staff that he's brought in are improving it. They've finally got a settled system now with the the five in midfield as opposed to the 4-3-3. The three, three. And it, it just, I mean... I, I, I don't know how you can take a negative spin yeah. of that the end of the year and try to turn it on its head. It's just for me, like you, where I've gone from I've gone from dreading watching Ireland and dreading the games and dreading the international break to oh, I can't wait to see if there's more improvement in this game. That's how I feel with Ireland. I, I think it's always it's it's on this the slope now where I believe with the more, which each time that Stephen Kenny gets to work with this team, that they're going to improve. It's sort of when, you know, Tuchel had two weeks off, or you know, Ragnick was yeah. working with United. It's one of those coaches that you think, if they get a break to work with these players for a solid two weeks, they'll improve by the next game. That's where I feel. And that's that. I think that is something that we kind of all consciously kind of forget, or subconsciously forget. It's like just the work it takes. It's not like just. You kind of like that it actually. I suppose we're kind of a little bit, maybe I don't know, I don't think it's else, but like we are kind of a little bit maybe tempted to kind of go, well, ex manager can do this. So once he comes in, he'll change that and it'll be fine because they'll just pick it up and go. But like, Jesus, like, it must be an awful lot of work to actually change how a whole group of people play to try and get everyone on board and try and fit. And obviously, you have to tweak to suit different people's needs in and amongst all this, especially with international football, where you're like, well, God, you kind of, because you kind of see it like you can kind of, just because there's an awful lot of flexibility in how and where people can play, like, or make the best, like your best left winger might not necessarily be a left winger for the club and you might, but they might, you know, and just, just so much things you can actually tweak and play around with. I think he's done remarkably well just to kind of, his patience and his calmness and to be sure he was fiery at times, but all in all, like his general kind of just, I know what I'm doing, I believe what I'm doing. And I'm going to keep doing it. And I, I, I'm thrilled from that. It's kind of reaping. He's reaping the benefits of that now because mm. you don't want to get too mocked or personal about it. Like, but I, I feel like he deserves it. I think he's. I think he has deserved this kind of chance now. Where almost right now we can start into this kind of the Nations League and the Euros. And he has kind of he know he now has his base. And now it's kind of right now we can judge him. Now we can actually see what he can do when he has a fair shake of it. Really. Yeah, the press conference one's an interesting yeah. sort of mix to this because I think anybody who worked in the media, anybody who's been around League of Ireland before, the press conferences would have been something they may have been worried about when it came to Stephen Kenny because when you look at Martin O'Neill or Roy Keane, they're clear, dominant, 
you know, yeah. charismatic people who their press conferences are always going to be, you know, they sort of exude confidence in their ability. Stephen Kenny isn't one of those people per se, but I feel like his back has been put to the wall enough over the course of the year where people got to see, all right, this guy really, really cares about what he's doing and really believes in what he's doing because when his back is to the wall, that's where you see the fiery side of Stephen Kenny. Yeah. I think that that was important in the public viewing him and what they perceived him to be because he can be a little bit awkward at times when he's sort of within himself. But I've, I've actually spoken to people who didn't follow the League of Ireland, never knew who Stephen Kenny was, didn't see him do any interviews before this. And they loved his press conferences because they could really tell that he like he believed in what he was saying and he was not going to back down for anybody. It is. And it, it is refreshing. He is entirely different. It's not that sort of alpha kind of, you're all here to see me. And, I, you know, I, I'll, tell, I'll tell you what I want to tell you and that's it. I, he is kind of, he's very considered and he does like seem... Certainly, I suppose with his with his pauses and just the way he speaks, that he kind of he does always seem to be very considerately thinking and listening, and then kind of okay, and uh, what do I think about this? And then he'll put it out there. It is it's completely different. He's not. I don't know why that is. You don't really see any people like that, though. I don't know. Maybe when you kind of if you're working in more elite club football or whatever, you kind of there's more of a template you kind of have to fit into. But he just seems to be completely his own his own man really and his own it's his own way he does it and he just oh look I don't it's so far so good for him it is it is captivating to watch him I do worry about him sometimes and maybe that's kind of silly I don't know why it's kind of a thing you're you're kind of watching like oh god I, I hope not that you hope you're okay but you kind of there is sometimes when it just it, he really it really seems to uh, any sort of negativity seems to hurt him or kind of get at him or kind of just get really under his skin. You're like, oh, you're going to be thinking, you're you're not sleeping tonight. It's just yeah. that kind of, you're like, you're not going to brush that off, are you? No, you can, it, yeah, it, it probably, it, it does get to him. You can tell yeah. if there's been negative press throughout the week and he has a press conference, he comes out firing. So he's clearly been thinking and lurking about it. This is Team 33. I'm at a call on the line with Arthur D here as we go through the year of 2021 through a football lens. Colin Buig is going to join us after the break. We're going to be getting our teeth into the Euros, which took place this year, and some of the more large football stories from this year. So stay tuned until that. Now you're welcome back to Team 33. And a call here with you until about 10 o'clock on this New Year's Eve. We're picking through the 2021 calendar year when it came to football. Before the break, myself and Arthur O'Dea touched on the Super League saga that took place earlier this year. We've also touched on Ireland's year in the World Cup qualifiers under Stephen Kenny. Colin Buig is on the line now as we pick through one of the biggest moments of the year, and that was the Euros. Took place a year later. It finally went ahead, and Colm, I, I don't know how you felt, but I felt that this was a tournament that did deliver exactly what we expected from it. Well, I don't think it did deliver what we expected because I think it was much better than I had anticipated. I wasn't really looking forward to the Euros, if memory serves, right? Anyway, I don't think I was. And um, from the first game with Italy, Turkey was, Italy were just brilliant. And there's that Netflix documentary recently about Italy's uh, Euros, which is really good. People haven't seen it's well worth watching. Um, and then right up until the penalty shootout in the final between England and Italy, it's brilliant. It was really, really good. The football was great. Um, 
there was enough tension as well. There was enough for, I suppose, this side of the world to get behind because this, the camp was split, whether we wanted England to do it or not. Um, and then, of course, the you know the biggest moment of all was uh, was Christian Eriksen, which was just, you know, like I was watching it back there last night and this morning ahead of our chat today. And, and I saw it like, it's funny how quickly you move on from things, you know, when you think about the next thing. And like, I, I forgot about the drama of that whole... That all those whole few minutes, like when you just didn't know what was going to happen with him, and then the Thomas Delaney um, initiating the guard around Ericsson as he was getting the treatment, and then and then what really struck me was a split second before it happened, the camera's actually on Ericsson as he prepares to receive the throw-in, so it's the last time you're seeing him as you know before the event happened. So it's it really kind of took me back watching it. Probably it actually took me back more watching it six months on than at the time. I I can't explain that. But mm. obviously, that's just one moment, and we want to talk about the football tournament instead of two. But it will live long in the memory for many reasons. Pretty much all I've just mentioned there, you know. Well, I'll tell you. Myself and Arthur had a conversation at the start of this about how muddled this year feels in terms of the the football news and just news in general. I actually forgot that about the Ericsson thing. I really com- completely put it to the back of my mind when I was yeah. thinking about the Euros. I think about Italy. I I actually vaguely remember the Ericsson, Ericsson thing I didn't have it as a big moment in my head but now that you mention it it's probably the story of the year when it came to the, the football story it was I mean I missed it initially Thank, I'm actually thankful that I missed it because that's not something mm. that I've gotten back too. to watch I it's did not too. something yeah. that I, I just my, my phone started buzzing mm. like mad all my WhatsApp groups were on fire Twitter was on fire even people that don't follow football were texting me to see if I was watching and I'm I'm actually thankful that I missed it. Arthur, did you did you watch it live? Do you have a abiding memory of it? Yeah, I was working. I was working. I remember I was sitting on the couch watching it. Um, it was a Denmark, Finland. Finland, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, I I to be honest with you, I thought he died. <laughs> like I not to be too flippant about it, but I did. I, I like when it was down there. You're like, oh, someone's collapsed, and you're like, you're kind of. I didn't know what it was, you know, and you don't know what it was at first. Whether it was just some kind of some muscular injury, whatever, just running, but. Um, yeah, when the when the apart when the when the kind of the grief and everything had set in, really apparent. I I, I genuinely I, I thought he had died. I thought he like I just it seemed that way. It seemed like what this is going to be, kind of a very very big moment now, and not like, like in, a, in a horrific way, you know. But jeez, mm. the, the image as well of his of his wife making it down to the touchline and Casper Schmeichel kind of trying to console her, and it, it's remarkable, really. Um, and she's what was, I forget what the referee's name was who came in for President Taylor. Taylor. Yeah, yeah. Taylor. it's incredible how close. I don't even. You kind of. I suppose in hindsight, it really did come quite close to that, to the, to the worst case scenario. If not for kind of people really, really clicking on and thinking, what do I actually need to do here? And it was just. It was, it's remarkable, really, in one respect that, like I suppose, it's it's a good story in one respect in that regard, just how well kind of it was dealt with, but. Um, Jeez, it is. It's it's striking, and then when you see how far they went on without him as well, yeah, you do wonder. Like it's it's kind of it's very it's it doesn't really matter, I suppose, by comparison. But um, geez, you do wonder if Denmark would have like they could have went the whole way with mm. him there, the way they were playing. Now, who knows? But anyway, but it doesn't really matter. But it was, yeah. I suppose I again like end. I completely not forgotten it, but I didn't. I don't think of it as being associated with this year at all. 
Mm, exactly. Yeah, it's it's not that I forgot that it happened. It's just that when I think of twenty twenty one, it's not something that immediately springs no. to my mind. Even when I think of the Euros, that was it was a lesson in how not to do football dire, direct uh, direction from yeah. the TV perspective. I mean, I think everybody was a bit horrified with what they chose to do, especially considering they don't even show a streaker running onto the pitch little, you know, yet they're able to show us a man almost dying on the pitch in front of our eyes. Denmark, the, yeah, they're an interesting story because I went into this show I was absolutely hating Denmark, you know, from an Irish perspective. I hated playing them. I didn't like their players. I thought they were arrogant. And then I came out of this tournament. I really wanted them to win. And I had a really different perspective of these guys. I suppose that's what, you know, this sort of sort of thing can do it can completely change how you view these people as not just footballers but human beings as well and i think you got a real good insight into how good some of those players are in terms of their human qualities and what they're willing to do to protect their friend and their family so yeah denmark were a massive story of the euros when i think of this year's euros the winners obviously spring to mind Colin, would we still remember italy as the team of the tournament, if they didn't win? No, don't think so. I think the um, game of the tournament was probably Italy-Belgium. And I think they were everyone's favourites after that, as an actual favourite team, and then probably favourites to win it. Um, and then the Spain semi-final is kind of overlooked a bit. But like when Jorginho missed his penalty to win it, I had the worst feeling in my stomach ever that I was like, oh my God, we're going to win this. And I did not expect Bukayo Saka to miss at all. It was uh, it was like when John Terry missed in the 2008 Champions League final. I just assumed he was going to score and I just sat there and I didn't react at all. And it was kind of the same for Spitzeko and Saka before I went mental. Um, and I think, no, they have to win for them to be the one that I remembered. Yeah, but they, I think they brought the most joy to the neutrals. Like, and mm. They played some great football. And I, I didn't really associate them so much with playing great football. I just found Italy themselves very entertaining. And I didn't mind the football so much, you know. I didn't mind them growing here one of the wins. I just loved the way they went about their business. National Anthem plays a big part in it. Uh, Giorgio Chiellini plays a big part in it. But then they actually ended up playing some really good ball. And I think they actually... And, wh- and also while doing that, they kind of carried a few players too. Who I like... Do you know when um, Chiesa went off injured, wasn't it kind of halfway through the second half of the final... I, I feared from them because it's like, Jesus, as, as well as they're playing and as attractive as their football is, they're actually quite limited in their squad. Yeah. And uh, I think their front three went off at various stages in that final. So they were pretty much toothless in attack, a bit like Denmark were in the latter stages of the semi-final against England. So I, I feared from them, but I was delighted that they won. And they were, for me anyway, the, genuinely the best team in it and the most entertaining. So, yeah. But if they lost a penalty shootout, I don't think we'd be talking with them, no. It was that fight. Yeah, I, I, they, were, they were definitely the most entertaining team in the tournament. By, by far and away, they were the best team to watch, which is not something you ever associate with the likes of um, the likes of Italy, who are always a very good team. But, you know, they're never really the great entertainers of, of any major tournament. But they were for this one. And they did so with, like you said, loads of players that you would not have said would have gotten into many of the top tier clubs around Europe but you had a really good system, a really good team, and they just played really well throughout the entire thing. Arthur, we have to talk about England. 
because you have you have so much so much to unpack with this England team. Be that the manager, the story of the you know developing from the Russian World Cup into this uh, football coming home, the feeling around the team going into the tournament, and they don't play all that well throughout the entire thing. But suddenly they're in the semi-finals, and you're thinking, oh. Are England actually are they actually going to do this? Are they actually going to get past the hoodoo and win another major tournament? And they didn't. And it, it was in spectacular fashion with the manager making the foible of not bringing on one player who has not played in the game to take penalties, but bringing on two players yeah. onto the pitch just to hit a penalty. I mean, what's your abiding rem- memory of this England story and how, how it came about? I it was funny. I was only watching. I was watching a little bit of the... BBC Sports Personality of the Year that award show I think it was on last weekend and um, I don't know whether Team of the Year was voted for by the public or what way it worked but England won it and um, <laughs> Gareth Southgate kind of I think Gareth Southgate Jude Bellingham and someone else I forget who the other person was came out to collect the award and uh, he kind of had to sheepishly kind of go I mean we really appreciate it uh, uh, especially as some of the other contenders there actually won something <laughs> It was just like, it was like, oh, it was just so grim. But that kind of summed it all up. Like, it was just kind of, look, I'm sure. Um, and like, obviously, like for people, so like, obviously, formerly of Team 33 uh, with Kieran Bradley, right? He enjoyed it immensely. And I'm happy for him. I know he's like born in, born in England, Irish heritage. He enjoyed it immensely fantastic for him great I would have liked if they'd won it for him I mean he would have been a little bit insufferable but fine I can take that that's good he would have enjoyed it that's all right but my abiding memory of that whole thing is like the day of the final and all the fans and all that sort of nonsense that was going on it's like I don't there's so many genuine and fantastic I'm sure England fans out there think but it was almost like ah You've unveiled it. You've shown yourself now. Mm-hmm. It's like you finally got here and you've managed to fool yourselves. Like these like it was just I still don't think enough was made then or now of the scenes around Wembley. Like I, I don't think that like I've never seen anything like that. And I've never seen anything I really think if that's anywhere else, if that's if the final had been in Kiev or in Moscow or in anywhere else, say in, in, in anywhere beyond what normally would have been Iron Curtain or whatever, in Eastern Europe, people would have ah, you know all sorts of derogatory things would have come out and everything else. But because it's in Wembley, it just, I know it didn't get swept away. I know it was covered, but I still don't feel like that was, they were incredible scenes. Like they were, it was crazy. Like anything could have happened. Mm. Well, the independent report says that, you know, they're very, very lucky that somebody didn't get killed. Like Like, incredibly lucky that somebody didn't get killed. Yeah. Which was an, an insane thing. And Colm, you sort of alluded to the whole, feeling of, you know, people wanting England to win in Ireland. And I was never on board with that. But plainly for football reasons, never mind historical reasons, but for plain football reasons, there are many, many reasons why you should not want England to win a major tournament. And on the day of the final, that unveiled itself in the greatest possible way with the fans trying to break into their own stadium to get into the final. It was insane stuff. Yeah, um, I think there's two things there that kind of debated the, what could have ended up being fatal was the, like, we'll never know for sure, but Luke Shaw scoring so early might have helped maybe yeah. to, to refocus minds on the match itself because if it was a boring nil-nil in the first half, 
you could argue that they also would have been distracted and that because uh, apparently what was happening was when they were getting so we heard about it ourselves and off the ball that week we were getting loads of contributors on who had been there and you remember all the there were fairly emotional uh, reviews that we were getting and uh, I think the general consensus was that it was madness that a lot of people there like a lot of families there had their seats taken and they yeah. basically for fear of you know intimidation they couldn't get them back and they, their whole day was ruined, and not to mention how much it cost them. So anyway, Shaw scores, and England are playing really well, and it's like, geez, we're actually going to do it. And maybe there was a bit of cohesion then as a result. Um, and then the other thing that uh, really surprised me was when they lost on penalties, I thought, oh, here we go. Post-match is going to be insane. And I don't know what it was, maybe because it was an awfully long day, and people started in the early hours of the morning. And that they had been wiped out by the time, because we had whole extra time and penalties, so we had the longest you can play. And maybe that they were just too wrecked by the end of it to actually do any more damage. But I thought the only way that they're going to do more damage now, this is like the immediate seconds after Saka misses, is if they had won. But the manner that they've lost, this is going to be crazy. And I was, you know, I pretty much stayed up most of that night checking checking Twitter, checking online to see if there had been any news reports. And basically, and actually, I transferred to Sky News, not Sky Sports News, because I thought this is going to be a bit of an incident here. <laughs> and I was uh, I was very surprised that nothing happened. Or nothing at all, I don't think, anyway. Well, you didn't have many riots, but you did have some of the horrific abuse that was leveled at oh, yeah, those, Saka yeah, and, and Rashford. Um, yeah, yeah. But that, I think everyone everyone expected that as well. As soon as and again, it's horrific that everyone went straight to that. Yeah, but everyone knew it was coming. Yeah. You know, it was so predictable that the the two players, the two black players who missed, were going to get racially abused. Yeah. That, you know, that night. You know, it was too. horrific that that's a thing. You know, it was one of the best moments of the year for me. Um, was the first day of the season, Brentford against Arsenal, and Saka came on as a sub. And he got standing ovation by the whole crowd. And I thought that was really genuinely nice. And like, it's easy to be cynical about those things. And, uh, but I really, I really liked that because it, it was kind of, there was a bit of show unity there. And, yeah. um, you know, like he was given a lot of support in the aftermath, but like to go through that, can you imagine it's like, you know, you're just switching on your phone and you just get all this nonsense back. Like, and you're probably trying to swipe away all the badness to get to the good stuff, but you're, you're going to have to mm. see the bad along the way. Awesome. Yeah, you mentioned a big story of the year there, so I'll get you to pick your football story of the year before we we finish up. Then, Arthur, do you want to go first? Twenty twenty one. If there's a football story that catch your imagination or caught your eye, or you know, it was if you were to sum up twenty twenty one as a football year, what would it be? I'd probably stay in close to what we were just talking about. I like nominally. I just I I loved. The uh, Roberto Mancini, Gianluca Vialli, that Italian backroom team, everything about their aesthetic, the look, the suits going back to what was the 82 mm. World Cup. Um, the, the, how, I, I forget what game it was, whether it was Belgium or Austria, where uh, they capture Mancini and Viali meeting at the end, the big embrace. And it's like, I just, that whole thing, it was just, it was really, really touching stuff. It was just, that was, that was beautiful. That was, I, I loved how that happened and how it all played out and that they were there for each other. And um, obviously other people from their Sampdoria days as well. And it just, that was to me, that was, that couldn't have been better. Like that was, that, I, I was as happy or more happy for them than any of the players or anything. That was yeah, perfect. 
Colin? I was uh, te- I was tempted to go on Ericsson too, but just for so many reasons. And like the Finland goalkeeper too, Lucas Radicky, he was the first person to spot it. I remember that he fell down. And... But uh, like we've already touched on that, so I, I suppose that's kind of an outlier. And and I I guess that's everyone's moment in twenty twenty one really because you know it's just so much more important than anything else. But in the in the more trivial aspects, I'd say uh, I would say the forty eight hours of the Super League because I remember being. Uh, like I, I was, I was, I was like shocked at myself and a bit disappointed about how disappointed I was. I was like, "Why do I care?" But I was really uh, kind of uh, a bit crestfallen that this is what football had become. And I remember we talked about that, and I think you, you, me, and Will, I think talked about it that week. And like we were like, "This is just the start of it. It's going to be worse." And then football just kind of moved on really quickly. And I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. And I might not know that for another year or so, but everyone forgot about it. And and then like mm. the Champions League final was really important. And you know, Man City and Chelsea and who's gonna win? And it was like, hold on a second, you didn't even want to play this tournament a few weeks ago, and now you think it's the most important thing ever. But yeah, I mean from the from the Manchester United played Burnley, I think that's Sunday afternoon, three one as well, as it was this week. And the match was totally overshadowed by the news that was imminent. And then that Sunday night, I remember being like, this is crazy. And Arsenal tweeting about it. You know, one of many clubs, but I just remember Arsenal's tweet being like, we have joined the Super League as if it was the best thing ever. And then this the stream of abuse in the comments, in the poll <laughs> tweet. I was like, how are they going to get away with this? Like, And then and then United not tweeting because they're seeing what's happening. The backlash, I was like, hold on. There might be a chink in the armour here. And then on the yeah. Monday morning, uh, Jose Mourinho sacked by Tottenham Hotspur, and it's not a big deal. <laughs> it's like, it's crazy, like, like that's a side show. And uh, six days before the League Cup final, and then they have Ryan Mason in charge, and it was like, that was, that's a crazy story. It's like, no, it's irrelevant. Get this football's about to finish up completely. I remember Leeds played Liverpool that Monday night at Lennon Road, and it was one all. And I don't think anybody could tell me what happened in that game because all the talk was Super League, and then the it, it finally ended with just before the Chelsea-Brighton game at Stamford Bridge on Tuesday evening, and the fans protesting outside and Petr Cech getting through the crowd with Moses and being like, oh, we're going to start it out, don't worry. <laughs> it's like Petr Cech to the rescue. Um, but at 48 hours of madness, but then it, it, I, the reason for me, it's the story of the year, is that the way it started falling apart bit by bit, and it was, it was kind of it was very exciting from Monday night. Monday night to Tuesday night, the adrenaline was pumping. And then yeah. you have, um, just to finish on that, you have Woodward resigning from United and allegedly regretting it that he decided to resign. It's like, I didn't, I didn't need to do that. But he's gone now and it's too late, although he's serving the longest ever in all this period that I can think of. But um, uh, just a crazy, crazy couple of days. And uh, we felt very good about ourselves on the Tuesday night and Wednesday morning. It's all oh, football saved. But now, you know, months later, I'm not sure because everybody moved on from it so quickly and they'd forgotten about it. And so, therefore, I think it could happen again because our guard is already dropped. Yeah, we were discussing that before the break and I, I, I don't know, I, I'm not so sure it's going to happen in the next at least five years. Um, I'm, I'm unsure. I, I, I don't know if they have the bottle to try to pull it off <laughs> again, but we'll, I, I, I'll finish off with my story of the year. And it's, it is a football story, but it's not quite a football story. It's a story about a footballer and that's Marcus Rashford. I think... He's one of the football stories of the year. Um, from like, it's not too often that you say that a footballer can overturn actual British legisla- legislation. He full on made the British government do a U turn on legislation that they were about to 
go through single-handedly. He was big enough to sway public opinion, feeding thousands of children. And I mean, it's horrific that he has to do that, especially in what is perceived to be, you know, a Western culture, a Western country, that he has to help children to actually survive. And the fact that he's done that, I know he's not doing it by himself. He has help behind the scenes. But if it wasn't his title, if it wasn't, if he didn't have the stardom of Man U- being Man United, being a young Man United player, being an England player, being a, a black player as well, doing this, it wouldn't have had the impact that it did. And, I, you know, people have been leveling abuse at him and people have been saying because his form on the pitch hasn't been matching up where he should be, that he should stick to football, that he maybe just concentrate on, on his real daytime job. And he's just forgetting about that and he's now pushing on from food to books to education and helping pl- people who are in situations that he was in as a, as a child to come out of it so it's unheard of or unheralded at this point in time and I, I just think it was phenomenal good story and everything that you hear about Max Rashford you're just thinking god you are a really really good guy and for he's younger than me he's still early early 20s and for him to be doing this, it's just, it was phenomenal stuff. I think it's just a really good story from a year of ultimately crap when it came to football. <laughs> yeah, uh, I remember the day that he uh, he had that long thread of tweets and he was uh, mentioning all these different, uh, was it businesses that were helping him out? And that was, mm-hmm. that was brilliant, yeah. Oh yeah, he took it, he took it to them and... Um, and it was it was kind of a rare example of genuine kind of people power, so it was great. And like it was uh, frustrating how quickly people started saying, "Oh, stick to football," because you know inevitably people got annoyed by it because it was so it was so wholesome. And it was like, "How can I pick holes in this?" Um, and I, and then I, I think unfortunately for him, what happens is if any time he goes through patchy form, it's brought up. Because it's like oh he's lost yeah. focus and he he was losing focus that's why he that's what why this has happened, and I think if he had say if he had ended the year in brilliant sparkling form that he has previously shown at Man United several times over the years, I think people would be like oh what a brilliant guy you know I can't yeah. believe he's helping yeah. people out but I think it's all connected to his form on the pitch which is completely irrelevant but that's what happens to him but look that obviously won't deter him because he's going to hear that a million and one times. So yeah, it does show you how fickle football fans though were. The results oh, yeah. on the pitch are but more people, important than feeding thousands people. of hungry children in England. Like, like that's, yeah, that's, yeah. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, limit that to football fans. This is human nature. Yeah, but I'd yeah, say yeah, he's yeah. well prepared for it and has good people around him. But hopefully he's just one. I, I hope he has started a culture where this is this becomes way more prominent in sports people in general. And I, hopefully it will. And I actually think that yeah. would be his greatest legacy, to be honest. Yeah, and you should I should mention Raheem Sterling in this as well because I mean he's doing uh, to be fair a, a lot of footballers are doing a lot of great things yeah, that we're, we exactly. just don't hear about. Well, yeah, that's uh, right, that's but true. this was in the public eye, so I think it's worth mentioning. Arthur Cullum, thanks very much. Happy, Happy New, New Year. Year. Happy New Year. All right, so that is us done on this week's and this year's Team Thirty Three. Thanks to you for listening across the year and to listening to, into the podcast and to what for watching the videos and for listening to us chat football all year on Team 33 and off the ball. We will be back again in 2022, which seems weird to say, but hope everyone out there listening has a happy new year and a healthy uh, 2022 as well. For the last time of 2021, take away, Johan.